Well, hello, Bethel. How you guys doing? Good, the two of you. It's great. You know, I like to say that joke all the time. It's so dumb. I, like, I, I always kind of add that in there. Like, not everybody's going to respond. I'm sure you guys are all doing good, but whatever. Um, yeah, let's not use this video for the website. Um, uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Tony Sorcey. I'm a pastoral assistant here. I have the privilege of bringing you God's word uh, this morning. And for the sake of time, we're just going to jump right in. We are continuing in our series in Acts. And this weekend, I want to talk to us about what it means and what it looks like to be a disciple. What it means and what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And, and to do that, we're going to take a close look at one specific guy from Acts chapter 8, Philip. Okay, we're going we're gonna to look at his life there. But before we get to talking about Philip, I want to focus for a few moments on this word, disciple. Um, because it's this word that the, the scriptures use to describe Christians, Christ followers, believers in Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the most common term that we use and throw out there for Christ follower, this word Christian, all right, it only appears three times in scripture. In context, Acts 26 and 28 and 1 Peter 4, 16 and then a third time here in Acts eleven twenty six, Luke writes this, and this is interesting. He says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Christians, three times in scripture. Now contrast that with the 269 times we find some form of the word disciple in scripture. And it's mostly in the New Testament, mostly the gospels. And in Acts, we find it 30 times. So as you can see from Acts eleven twenty six, and even kind of contrasting the, the numbers there of disciple and Christian, uh, Luke uses these words interchangeably. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. Now there's all kinds of terms, all kinds of words that the New Testament writers use to describe Christ followers or disciples. You have saint, believer, elect, children, son, church, sheep, flock, etc. There's a, there's a ton of them. And all those terms and all those words are meant to fully describe and fully express what it means to be in Christ, to be a follower of Christ. But the repeated use of the word disciple tells us to be, tells us that to be a disciple is a fundamental category for us as Christians. So what is a disciple? What does the word mean? The word disciple means pupil learner, a learner, a student. And most often in this context would be a student or a learner of a rabbi or a philosopher. And this disciple-master relationship, it was very common in the first century, very common at the time of Christ. It wasn't odd at all. For example, Jewish rabbis had disciples. The Pharisees prided themselves on being disciples of Moses. We even see that John the Baptist had disciples, and we know from the life of Jesus that he chose 12 and called them disciples. Now, this wasn't exclusively a Jewish religious thing, as we see the famous Greek philosopher Socrates or Socrates, for all you Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure fans, for all of you who are 30 in this room, yeah, that's me, sorry, I'm a lot of 80s here, early 90s, I apologize for that. So Socrates, Socrates, he used the same Greek term that we see in the New Testament here uh, for a disciple to refer to his followers, he used the same Greek term. Disciples were those who would normally come, sit under, and adopt the teaching distinctives of their master, their teacher. So, for example, if you were a Jewish disciple studying under a rabbi, meant that you would submit to your rabbi's interpretation and practice of Old Testament law. And these writings and these teachings of, of the rabbi were known as Talmud. And Talmud in Hebrew means instruction, and it was derived from the Hebrew term for learn. And so with this idea of teaching and learning, the word disciple came to mean the adherence of a particular outlook in religion or philosophy, a student learner. Now, as we study the word disciple itself, as we kind of consider what it means for us to be disciples, and as we look at a few kind of classic examples from religion and philosophy, we see that the main emphasis of this kind of relationship was a rational one, a transfer of knowledge, teaching, and interpretation. And we kind of... We, we, we kind of like hit a wall here because as we look at the New Testament, as we look at Jesus particularly, we, we see it's much more than that. It's kind of hard to just do a basic Greek word study of the word disciple to really get the, the sense and the essence of what it means to be a disciple and a Christ follower. And the reason for that is because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he radically redefines this. Jesus radically redefines the disciple-master relationship, just like he does with everything. 
you, you have heard it said he's always just flipping people's theological worlds upside down, challenging their presuppositions. And it's the, it's the same with the disciple master relationship. So whereas a simple word study, though very helpful in most cases, it's not significant to capture the way that Jesus viewed and made disciples. What we need to do is this. We need to look at the discipleship dynamic that Jesus himself created. We need to look at the discipleship dynamic that Jesus created. And just as important, we need to look at the nature of the disciples after that time with Jesus and their commitment to him. So what was the discipleship dynamic Jesus created? And two, what do we see the disciples saying? What do we see them doing? How did they act? What was their life? What did it look like after they became disciples? And for that example, we're going to look at Philip in Acts 8. But before we do that, let's look at this discipleship dynamic that Jesus creates. How did Jesus view and make disciples? And what we're going to find is that Jesus viewed disciples as rational, relational, and missional. Rational learners, relational family, missional missionaries. All right, so we got these three things kind of flowing all throughout Jesus' ministry with his disciples. First one is this, rational. We're learners. Disciples are learners. It's foundational part and aspect of being a disciple. Notice that when Jesus comes, a foundational part of Jesus' coming was to speak the truth and to reveal the Father. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen the invisible, transcendent, large, holy, big God. He is invisible to our eye. But in Jesus, God has come. And he is tangible. And you can touch him and feel him and walk and talk with him. And you can hear from him. Jesus comes and explains. He explains and reveals the truth about God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth about God is found only in Christ. Only in Christ. And the word of Christ As the scriptures point to Christ, the scriptures point to Christ and they are God's self revelation. Everything else is speculation. Everything else is speculation. That scripture, that word that you hold in your hand, that Bible app that you have out, that is God's self revelation. Any talk, any, any comments, any, any thoughts or any waxing philosophically about God outside of the scriptures is merely speculation. We need to go to the word for his revelation. And so Jesus spent much time revealing the truth of who God is with his disciples. Through sermons, through parables, stories, object lessons, Jesus labored to teach the disciples about himself and about his kingdom. Look at Acts 1. What do we see after the risen Christ? He spends 40 days on earth. And and what is he doing? The text tells us, look at Acts 1. It says he spent the time teaching them about the kingdom of God. His whole life teaching them, walking with them, explaining to them. And even after his risenness, before his ascension, he's teaching the disciples about the kingdom. Now, as important as that rational and teaching piece was, it wasn't the end. Didn't Jesus didn't just view his disciples as mere students. Rather, he taught and revealed God in close proximity to these disciples and in the context of a relationship, which leads us to our next thing. Disciples are relational. They are family. Disciples are also relational. Jesus views us as family. Look at John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. I have called you friends. There's a relationship here. The context of a relationship in which disciples learn in and grow in. Friends. You're not servants, right? Servants have no idea what their master is doing. You're friends. I know you. You're family. And look at the, it goes on. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. There's that rational piece. You see it? You see the two coming together here? I call you friends. And everything the father's made known to me, I reveal to you. He says it even more explicitly here in Matthew 12. Look at what he says. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So his biological mother and brothers. This is like his real blood here. His real mother, brother, real family. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here's my family, Jesus said. They're my disciples followers of me, those who trust in me, follow me. Think about this. God humbled himself in Jesus to share everyday life with very common people. He chose 12 men, ranging from everything from fishermen 
to political fanatics, to government workers. He shared everything with them. Everything from meals to teachings to his heart. And eventually he would share his sufferings with them. For three years, every moment spent with these 12 men. Look at Mark 3.14. And he appointed the 12, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him. See that? So that they might be with him. With him. That's that relational piece. Every moment, Jesus brought these men with him. Now, what's the point of the with him and the learning? It's to be with Jesus in relationship with him and to learn from him just so that we can have that, right? Just so we can say, I know Jesus and I know about Jesus. No, look at how Mark 3.14 goes, goes on. And he might send them out to preach. And here's where we come to this last element of what it means to be a disciple. Missional peace. We are missionaries. We're not, we're not, God is not coming and, 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 and making relationship with us and teaching us just so that we can have that and sit back and hoard it for ourselves. No, he's sending us out to preach missional. <clears throat> All four gospels, every single one end with the risen authoritative Christ sending his disciples out on mission. Everyone flip to the end of all four gospels. And we've, what we've seen from Acts is that Acts starts with this mission, right? Go into all the world. Go. You're my witnesses to the end of the earth. Now, in talking about all of this, this, this learning, this relating in the context of relationship and, and being family and this missionary piece, it's important for us to recognize that this mission has already been modeled and accomplished for us in Christ. He is the ultimate missionary. He is the ultimate learner. He is the ultimate brother, son, right? He's modeled and accomplished ultimately all these things for us. It's important that, that we see that because as we examine Philip, as he goes out on mission, we see him doing all the things that disciples do, and we're going to be reminded of Christ. As we look at Philip, we're going to be reminded of Christ. And the reason for that is, is because disciples and all they do and all their learning, relating and going, they reflect, mirror, and here's a biblical word, they image Christ. And all their learning, relating and going, disciples, us, we image, mirror and reflect Christ. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. He uses this word. For those whom he foreknew, for those disciples, right, Christians, those of us in Christ, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Christ, might be firstborn among many brothers. This is the goal of discipleship, to be conformed into the image of Christ. The word conform, Greek, morphe, to morph or make of like form with another person or thing. Disciples are sinners. They are those created in God's image, those who have fallen like our first parents have in sin and in rebellion. We're we're fallen image bearers who have been restored in and through Jesus and his finished work and are daily being restored into the image of Jesus Christ. We are being morphed, changed, made to be like him. Christ is our end. He is our goal. That's the whole point here in Romans 8 of God's foreknowing, predestining, and saving us is that we might be like Christ. And while the end goal of our salvation is that we change and conform to the image of Christ, the end goal of our imaging Christ, in God's eyes, I don't want you to miss this, is that Christ be glorified in all that we do. And everything, in any bit of obedience, and any bit of transformation, any bit of imaging and mirroring Christ, from God's perspective, all that is so that Christ might be glorified. Look at what Paul says here. That he might be the firstborn, preeminent, highest rank, first place, to have the supreme position among many brothers who are like him. God is doing this in this world and in your life, disciple, for his own glory. For his own glory. That's what everything's about. Everything that God does, does is to that end. Bethel, being a disciple is much more than getting your ticket punched to heaven someday. It's far more about getting some seat or cloud or however you imagine heaven being, sitting around in angel diapers, shooting arrows, whatever. It's, so, it's far more about getting your ticket punched to heaven someday. Being a disciple of Jesus has to do with every facet of our lives. 
being transformed to resemble and mirror the one who has come, lived, died, and rose on our behalf. Jesus, to the glory of God. To the glory of God, we are learners, family, and missionaries. And as we learn, relate, and go, we are ever being transformed into his image. And so with that said, let's turn to Philip and let's look. What does it look like for a disciple, and it, 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 to, uh, one who images Christ in a broken and fallen world? And we're going to read a lot of scripture, so I'm going to invite you all to stand with me to read. I'm going to read Acts 8, 1 to 40. That's right. I said it, 1 to 40. So loosen it up. Get up, get those Bibles out, those apps open. And actually what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on Philip. So the second half of the story of Simon the Magician, we're going to skip over. Uh, for the sake of time, we're going to pick it back up in 26. And 8.1 really starts us off with a little bit of context and where we're at in this mission. 7, at the end of 7, you'll read and see that Stephen, another disciple, is murdered. He's stoned, okay, for, for the sake of Christ, for witnessing unto Christ. And we see this stoning in Acts 1, what it creates. Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of his execution. That eventually would be the Apostle Paul. He approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Pause really fast. What did Jesus say the mission was going to be? Go to the ends of the earth. Go from Jerusalem where those disciples were originally at to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know what's happening in Acts 7? The disciples are saying, put, they're, they're all cushy in Jerusalem. And God's like, no, you need to go. You need to go. So what does God do? He brings about a great persecution to spread and scatter his people. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, here's where we get introduced to Philip. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard and saw him and the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in, magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, Simon was amazed. Skip to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, and, and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come in and sit with him. 32, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Samaria. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. So here's Philip. What do we know about Philip? We see all this learning, relating, and going peace in Philip. He was a part of those original disciples in Acts 2, right? Where they were coming and they were sitting under the apostles' teaching. And Pastor Jim did a great job of sharing with us Acts 2. 
Philip was part of that number, sitting under the apostles' teaching, learning. He was relating. He was in a relationship with God. He was saved. He repented of sin. God welcomed him freely into his family based on Christ, adopted him as a son, as a child. He was also relating to others who knew God. Acts 2, if you remember, they were in each other's homes, breaking bread. And they were even going to the temple together to worship. And two, the missional piece. As the church there in Acts 2 was on mission, and here in Acts 8, we find Philip on mission. And what we've already seen is that disciples image Christ. Image Christ in all their learning, relating, and going. I have nine ways that we see Philip imaging Christ and living out this discipleship identity. Some of these are going to be quick. Some of them I'm going to spend a little bit more time on. Some of them I cut like hardcore at the end. So we'll see how we do. But nine ways that we see Philip living out this disciple identity. The first one is this. Disciples live the small story of their lives within the grand story of redemption. Disciples live the small story of their lives within the grand story of redemption. Now, here's why I love Philip. He's just a guy. Just a dude. Just a dude. Right? Acts 2. What does God do? Saves 3,000. Right? Acts 4. What does he do? Another 1,500. Philip's just one guy. One guy. Just a guy. Acts 8, 4 says that those who were scattered, they went about preaching the word. Those are thousands of people that were scattered. Philip, one dude. One guy. Now, take a step back. And just think about this, right? Just take it, just a step back from Acts 8. And think about from Genesis to Revelation and the whole of God's redemptive plan. Think of everything that has happened up until this point here in Acts 8. And think about everything that is yet to happen. After this, Philip gets two-thirds of a chapter in Acts. Two-thirds. Small part of the story. Small part. Now, no way am I saying insignificant. Not at all. God chose to use Philip to bring the gospel to Samaria. Significant for sure, but small. In the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan to glorify himself by bringing the gospel to the nations, you and I and Philip play a small role, and disciples know this. Disciples know this. They see that it's not about them. We see it's not about us. It's about God and his purposes. And so looking at God's redemptive plan, this causes us to be humble, right? To see that we're a small part of that. You know what else makes us seem small? Creation. Creation. Um, I had an absolutely insane week this week. It was crazy. Funeral on Monday, all kinds of stuff in between the week, preaching the weekend. I did a wedding on Friday and I was just smoked, smoked on Friday. And I got home really, really late and I went out on the patio and I was just chilling out on my back patio, looking up at the stars and they were not as bright as these lights right here. But I was looking up at the, at the stars and I don't know, I was just tired and I was just having this moment with God. And I was just looking up and I was just looking at creation and I was reminded of God's redemptive plan. I was just having this cool moment and God was so good to me in my weakness there. And as I was looking up, I was just reminded of Psalm 8, which says this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is Man, that you are mindful of him. What is man? Who are we? Who are you? Who am I? And the son of man that you care for him. You know what the psalmist is saying? Who are you? Who are any of us? When you look at all this, who are we? We are small. This is not about us at all. None of this is about us. And I don't know about you, but I can't hear that enough. Because so many times I place myself right at the center of the universe. And I'm so stinking selfish. And all arrows are pointing in at me. This is not about me. This is about none of us. This is about God and his glory. A few weeks ago I came across a quote from Tim Keller. It was really good. I put it up on my Facebook wall. I don't put anything up on my Facebook wall like some of you. Right? I swear, some of you. I want to block like half of our church on Facebook. You people are ridiculous, right? I don't want to play Farmville with me. I don't want to play Bedazzled or whatever that is. Stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> Facebook repentance. That's what needs to happen around here. Something to pray about. But Keller said this, and it stuck with me because I need to hear this because I'm not like this. He said, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. It's not about you. Disciples know this. Disciples know that it's about God. 
In Bethel, we're going to need to move forward with this because in the coming weeks, months, there's going to be a lot that's changing, a lot that's changing. And if you're at the center of the universe and everything that's going on around here, your panties are going to be in a bunch and you're going to freak out. And I don't mean, I I probably should have used a different phrase there because I mean, I mean this to be a very serious thing. Uh, Church folks can be really selfish, especially in the light of change. We need to see this. It's not about us. It's not about us. Not everything's about me. Disciples image Christ in this way by humbling themselves like Christ did by becoming obedient to the Father's will. Disciples know that everything that God's doing in this world is so that he might be glorified. Disciples are about God's purposes, not their own. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee, every tongue is going to confess, bow to Jesus, not us, to God's glory, not ours. Next thing, disciples are sent with and share Good news. Disciples are sent with and share good news. Here's something cool. Check this out. In Acts 8.1, it says that the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for who? Who's the only one that, that stayed back? The apostles, right? The paid staff, the pastors, right? The professional guys, they stayed back and the church was scattered. Now, it wasn't that they were chickening out. A lot of commentaries say that, no, they stayed back and they, they absorbed the full brunt of that persecution. So I don't see in there the, anything cowardly. They were leading for sure. But it's important that we see this. And it's worth mentioning because we need to see that it was very ordinary and average people in the early church, not the apostles. And they were ordinary for sure. But very average and ordinary people like Philip, like me, and like you that were responsible for spreading the gospel to the end of the earth. Will Mitziger writes in his book, Tell the Truth. In our world, probably 99.9% of all Christians are not in full-time ministry unless everyone engages in evangelism, praying, initiating, and fervently speaking the gospel. Not much will happen. New birth into God's kingdom usually involves people as spiritual midwives. The work of mission is not the job of a few. Part of your identity as a disciple and an image bearer of Christ is that you go like Christ went. Now look, look at how diverse the gospel is. Look at who we see Philip sharing the gospel with, his enemies, Samaritans. He's in Samaria, Acts 8, 4. What do we know about uh, Jews and Samaritans? They get along? They're cool? Homies? Not at all. Not at all. John goes so far out of his way in his gospel to say that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And here we see Philip in hostile territory, being a bearer of good news and an agent of redemption in the midst of a difficult situation. How about in verse 12, right? We meet the, we meet the resident Harry Potter of Samaria. Here's a pagan magician. He's waving his wand around, right? He's got his round glasses on. He's doing magic, right, in Samaria. And everyone's like, whoa, check this dude out until Philip comes with the gospel and blows everybody away. And even to the point where, where Simon's like, oh yeah, I got nothing. And is like, amazed at the gospel and the power of Christ. And it says that even Simon believes. How about this? A Gentile seeker, right? We got the pagan magician, Gentile seeker. This is the eunuch in verse 27. You guys know what, what a eunuch is? You just know a little bit about this? Some of you? Well, eunuchs have castrated themselves. If you're here, like ask your parents what that means on the way home. Like I'm not getting into that, right? But this is what a eunuch is. They've traded a family for fortunes. And this is what we see this guy. He's in the palace. He's in charge of all the money for the Ethiopian queen. And this guy's riding around Jerusalem in his pimped out chariot, seeking God. He's carrying a scroll of Isaiah, wanting to know who this points to. And Philip is sent by the spirit and goes and explains to him, right? Isaiah 53 is about Jesus, about Jesus. See the diversity here. Enemies, pagan magicians, Gentile seeker. The gospel is diverse and it's powerful. The gospel speaks to everybody. There's nobody that the gospel doesn't speak to because Jesus is the only way for everyone, for everyone. The gospel is diverse and powerful, powerful to save unlikely sinners, bring healing, forgiveness, and redemption. And it's powerful to break down hostile barriers. Disciples image Christ in this way when they spread the good news of the kingdom like Jesus did. When they talk about the good news, which is all about Jesus, spending time with people, listening to them, asking them good questions, conveying a love and a care for them, and letting folks know that in Christ, God has done something remarkable on behalf of sinners, and that because of Christ, we can come to know the peace and the joy of having sins forgiven, and we can have a right relationship with the creator of the universe. God goes from judge to father in Christ, and it's all because of him.
This is the good news. Piggybacking on that very point, we see that disciples love people. Jesus said, you'll know them, but you will know them, my disciples, by their love for one another. Disciples love people. Now, I want to point out the real intensity of this moment for Philip here in Acts 8. When Philip enters Samaria, he is crossing some very real, hostile, racial, and religious lines to love people that don't like and aren't like him. That don't like and hate, don't like and aren't like him. And as I've said before, this stuff between Jews and Samaritans, this is some real like Hatfield and McCoy stuff going on here. I mean, this is brutal. This is brutal. It's very real. And when you see Philip here in hostile territory in Samaria, how do you not think of Jesus? How do you not think of Jesus? He's imaging the gospel. He's imaging Christ. How can you not think of Christ who was God in eternity past? The creator took on the likeness of creation and became a man. And he became, and he came to those who weren't like him. And not only that, he came to a world that didn't just not like him, but a world that rejected and despised and murdered him. And we see Philip doing the same. He's in enemy territory. And maybe, just maybe, for Philip, as he's leaving Jerusalem and he feels the heat of that persecution and is heading down to Samaria, maybe, maybe he remembered the story that was told of Jesus who sat down at a well in the same city and extended grace to a relationally ravaged, hurting, broken woman and asked her for a drink. And along with that, and and thinking about how he was loved in Christ, it gave him the capacity to love his enemies in this moment. Disciples image Christ in this way, when they see that Christ has come to die for a whole world filled with his enemies and freely welcomes whoever, regardless of race, gender, and class, whoever would believe in him. And disciples love in this way because disciples were loved in this way. Next thing, disciples hate sin and all that it affects. Notice Philip here in Samaria. He's being used by God to bring about healing and redemption. And there's all kinds of healings and casting demons out. Don't get caught up in that. The, the picture is much bigger. Philip has a, a heart of brokenness in him, and he wants to come and see things change for God's glory. And he sees a broken world, a fallen world that's ravaged, where Satan has a foothold. And he comes and he wants to see redemption take place. He wants, to see, he wants to see love come and the gospel come and, and Christ to be known and for the gospel to be powerful. This is what he does. This is a disciple. Philip is imaging this for us. He's given us this example. Men and women who hate sin and long for Christ to make it right. We hate sin and all that sin affects. Let me ask you, do you feel the weight of sin in this world? Do you feel the weight of sin in your own life? Do you ache Do you have a burden? Do you hurt at your core when you see boys, girls, men, women with deformities, diseases, ailments? Do you get mad and angry and frustrated when you see injustices, racism, hatred? Do you get angry when you look out of this world and you see even your own brokenness? Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? When you hear of people dying, we had like four people from our church that passed away this last week. Do you hurt in that moment? And in that moment, do you long for just Christ to come back and make all things new and just be done with all this suffering and all this pain? You know, this last week, last weekend, we we said that uh, Dustin didn't lead us in worship and we announced that his granddad had passed away and we came back to staff meeting this Tuesday and a lot of times when we come back and Steve will just kind of have us all go around and just share what's going on personally in our lives and just so he can get caught up to speed with us and, and Dustin was last and he was, he was talking about this experience of his, of his granddad passing away and it was a great service and his granddad was in Christ and you could tell as he was explaining it, Dustin was just fighting back tears, you know, he's just, he's just getting emotional and I'll, and I'll, he, he kind of was reflecting on the whole thing. And at the end, he said, I'll never forget it. He said this. He said, it made me hate sin and all the effects of the fall and long for Jesus to return. That's a disciple. That's a disciple. We hate sin and all that it affects. Disciples like Philip image Christ in this way. When we're burdened by sin to the point that we long to see it change and we do something about it in Christ. And here's how we image Christ. In Christ, we see someone that hated sin, loved the glory of God, and did something about it. 
Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And thank God, Bethel, that he came and won that and did that on our behalf. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And we image him. We image him. Next thing, disciples are marked by joy. Notice the result of Philip's ministry in Samaria. Verse 8. There was joy, much joy in that city. Drop down to verse 39, right after we see this response from the eunuch. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way, what? Rejoicing. Joy. Joy. Joy is a defining mark of a disciple. And let me ask you, what other response is there in light of the gospel other than joy? What other response is there? To hear that in Christ, we have the forever favor and forgiveness of the Father. That in Christ, he died to reconcile us to God. Where we can enjoy him forever. We don't have to fear or try to impress God. Christ impressed God on our behalf. And bore the weight and the guilt and the shame of the sins of the world. We have the acceptance of the Father. We have his forgiveness. Joy. Clapping, amen, something, joy, joy. God loved you when you were at your worst. When you were at your worst, you tell me, what can you do that will wear God's love out for you? Nothing, nothing, nothing. God is committed to you. He loves you not when, not if. He loves you, period, in Christ. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says this, Blessed, happy, truly happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Not in whom there is no iniquity. No, we are, we are sinners, right? We sin. Blessed is the one who the Lord counts, doesn't hold against us iniquity. Why? Because he's laid it on Christ. And Christ paid it all on our behalf. The Lord doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And this ought to produce a profound joy in our lives and in our hearts. Disciples mirror Christ in this way when they're overwhelmed by the security they have in their relationship with God, the Father, who's working all things out for their ultimate good, for his glory. Listen to this description of Jesus in Hebrews 12. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ accomplished this joy for us on our behalf. And we look to him and we smile and we have joy. Even in the midst of difficulty, pain, and hardship, the victory is won. The end is written. God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely sovereign. And he's using everything in this world to conform us and change us into his image and to glorify himself. Next, disciples are led by the Holy Spirit. Disciples are led by the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus said the Father's going to send the Spirit. And he's going to be the power. He's going to be the dunamis for this mission. And we see this power. We see the spirit working in Philip. Three times in the text in Acts 8, it mentions the Lord or the spirit of the Lord speaking to, leading, and moving Philip. And the best one's in Acts 8.39, right? And and we'll say it again here. He he comes and he speaks to the eunuch. The eunuch believes. He baptizes him. He comes up out of the water. And the text says, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And he ends up in Azotus, the next town over. There's like no alcohol involved here, no partying, no blackout drunk kind of waking up in the next town or a cornfield stuff going on here. Just not at all. The spirit is just like, boop, boom, right? Just carries him away like that. And it's crazy, right? And it's just like, God doesn't normally do this, you know? Like, an application from this message is not like, God, I want to save gas, so just kind of... Pluck me up here and, and home. This is not normal. God doesn't normally do this, but we see that he does this with, with Philip. That's why a lot of theologians say that Acts isn't normative. But we see this, that disciples are led by the Spirit. They're moved by the Spirit. They're guided by the Spirit. The, the, the Spirit comes to Philip and says, go. Go talk to the eunuch. Go over to that chariot. Disciples are those who are made alive by, and dwelt by, empowered by, and led by the Spirit. And the only way, listen... The only way any of this imaging Christ, any of this obedience is possible, is due to the work of the Spirit's regeneration in my life and His indwelling. That's it. I muster up no good works on my own. Paul said, nothing good dwells in me. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. 
All this is a result of God and the Spirit at work in our lives. The fact that we even care, that we even care to obey God's commandments and have the ability to carry it out is the work of the Holy Spirit. So another reason not to put fingers here, right? It's not about us. It's not about us. Disciples image Christ in this way, by being led and strengthened by the Spirit of God for all the works that God has prepared for us to do. Look at this description of Jesus from Acts 10. Peter says this, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Peter's going to summarize the life and ministry of Christ here. Look what he says. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How do you not look at that and be reminded of Philip here in Acts 8? See that? He's doing the same. He's doing the same because disciples image Christ. Disciples mirror Christ. Next point, and I'm just going to cut down on these really fast, these next two, and then we'll hit the last one. Disciples are learners and teachers of God's word. Notice Philip. He comes and he breaks down Isaiah 53 for this eunuch. How does he come to this understanding? How does he come to this understanding? And not only that, it said, and beginning with that scripture, he explained to him the good news. Meaning that Philip's in Isaiah 53, he's everywhere. He's explaining the good news. Old Testament. How many of you can explain the gospel out of the Old Testament? And here's Philip breaking it down. OT. No NT hasn't been written yet, right? Philip has this understanding, this learning. Why? Because he's a learner. He's a learner. He sat under the apostles' teaching. The Spirit has come and has opened up his mind to understand the scriptures. And not only that, but he doesn't learn just to keep it to himself. He's a teacher as well. Notice when it said the Spirit told him to go over to the chariot. He ran. He ran. He booked it over there. And he's all excited. What are you reading? Isaiah 53. Dude, let me tell you about this. Right? He learns so that he can share. So that he can teach. Disciples are learners. And they don't hold it in and hoard it all. They share with others for their joy and for God's glory. That's what, that's what learners, that's what disciples do. Disciples image Christ in this way by immersing themselves in the word. Where they come to see and savor this image that they're being transformed into. Next thing, disciples are about Jesus, nothing else. Really quick, check this out. Disciples are about Jesus, nothing else. I love Acts 8, 39. I'm going to read it just one more time, and we're going to draw one point out of it. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, why does this point us to the fact that disciples are about Jesus and nothing else? The eunuch just got led to Christ by Philip. And Philip is just taken away, taken away. And what do we see, Philip? What do we see the eunuch doing? Is he all bummed out that the guy that led him to Christ is gone? No, he continues worshiping. He continues exalting because it's not about the guy that led him. It's about Jesus. Do you see this? I've heard way too many stories from people in this church, in this church that talk about at one time they had a vibrant faith, maybe in youth group or they were a part of this ministry, only for that pastor or ministry leader to go or that ministry to be taken away. And then they go into extended periods of apathy and some even fall away from the faith. Why? Because they're trusting in men. They're trusting in ministries. Trust in Jesus who by his own blood has made an eternal covenant with you to never leave you nor forsake you. And disciples don't point to themselves. They point to Jesus. Disciples push back when people are all about them. Amen. Amen. And I just want to say, if that's you here, if you're, if you, if you just are putting too much stock in a ministry leader around here or a ministry, what happens when that's gone? Are you going to spin off into apathy? And fall away from the faith. Anchor your trust and your hope and your love in Christ. And when Christ is your savior, when he's your God, when he's your treasure, only then can you properly love those who are in ministry. And properly properly engage in the church. Men will let you down. Ministry leaders will let you down. Jesus does not let any of us down. Ministry leaders, elders, pastors, Tony, Sorcy, do not point to yourself but to Jesus. Disciples are about Jesus, nothing else. Last point. Disciples follow Christ even unto death. Disciples follow Christ even unto death. 
Jesus was a unique rabbi and that he was the only one ever who talked about the possibility of suffering and even dying for himself and for his teachings. And there's a sacrificial element that Jesus taught on and eventually modeled for us in the cross. Listen to these words from John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. There's a radical sacrificial element to being a disciple. Let's play with a little word here. Acts 1.8, as we know, Jesus has told us that we are witnesses. Witnesses. Now, the word witness in Latin is martis. The word witness in Latin is martis. And the word initially implied that they were to bear, these disciples bear witness to what they had seen and heard. Then to witness to what they believed to be true. And eventually, as Jesus taught, to be willing to suffer unto death for this witness to the truth. Witness, martis, is where we get our English word martyr. Now, here's Philip. He's part of this persecution that caused him to leave Jerusalem and ended up in Samaria. And Philip is sandwiched in between two people who gave their lives for Christ. Stephen at the end of Acts 7 was stoned as a witness. And in Acts 9 were introduced to Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, who we know eventually, as church history tells us, was beheaded in Rome. There's a sacrificial element to being a disciple. And this question's been posed a bunch of times in the church. And I don't want this to get lost in here. And this is not a thing where I'm like, throw a bunch of guilt on you guys. But look at us in here. It's comfy. It's cushy. What do we got in here, guys? 69, 68 degrees, right? AC. I'm preaching under these lights. I'm comfortable. I'm sweating a little bit. I'm spitting. You know, I'm I'm up here. I'm working it, right? I'm comfortable still. Look at all you guys sitting in these comfy chairs, arms folded, relaxed, right? AC. It's comfy. It's cushy here. What happens when there comes a time when it's not? What happens? What happens? How will we know? How will we know that in the face of uh, Philip and, and, and Paul and, and, and Stephen and all these disciples that we've seen and, and, and really a reality for many followers of Christ and disciples in this world currently, what if it meant to give your life and to risk your life to follow and be a witness of Christ and it wasn't easy like it is here? How do you know that you will? I will tell you what I tell couples that I marry. I'll tell you what I tell husbands and wives as they enter into marriage. And I thought about this. I just did a wedding on Friday. Here's a little excerpt from my wedding message. I tell them this. And so how will you know if you'll have the courage to make huge sacrifices in your marriage if and when the time comes? It's found in the little sacrifices that you make each and every day over the years. How will you know if you'll have the courage to make sacrifice for Christ in the face of some real, real hardship? Is there any sacrificial element at all to your faith now? And this is what I tell husbands and wives. Guys, is there any, any sacrificial element? Have you ever shut the bear's game off to talk with your wife? Have you ever picked up to wash the dishes and allow your spouse to rest? Those little sacrifices, right? And all these little moments that Christ is calling us to sacrifice for now, maybe someone not liking us or talking about us behind our back. Some of us are so ruined by that with men and women, the thoughts and opinions of us and these little sacrifices. And I truly believe in the face of real hardship, God will give a grace in that moment because naturally I'm a coward and naturally I run. But by God's grace and the spirit indwelling me, by God's grace, I will be a witness unto death. Is there a sacrificial element at all in your life right now? Disciples image Christ in this way. When the difficult moment comes, they submit to the will of the Father. They say, not my will, but yours, and die to ourselves. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Last thing in closing here. And all these things, it's so vital, it's so important, that Jesus not just be our Savior, that he not just be our Lord, but that he be to us treasure. Treasure. Something that our hearts affection and attention attaches itself to that we're really captured that we're in awe of christ that we love him from the heart not just some guy that did something that i can be somewhere someday but every day that he be treasure that he be amazing 
And the life of the disciple, the life of those who are in Christ is one where every day we need to bring ourselves to a point where we are just captured and raptured and dominated by thoughts of Christ and his loveliness and his beauty and the treasure that he is. That he needs to be to us our righteousness, our joy, our strength. Listen, we can't muster up any of this obedience on our own. We can't. The message is not, hey, go out here and just let's go and let's, let's go get him. No, it's we need to look at Christ because it's he that we image in this world. One last verse in closing, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. How does this image bearing work? How does this, how does this growth, how does this growth in discipleship, how does this obedience work in the Christian life? 2 Corinthians 3.18. You're going to be reminded of Paul's words in Romans 8. And we all, we all, disciples, those who are in Christ, with unveiled face, God has removed the blinders. We see, by God's grace, he's revealed the truth to us. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of Jesus, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking to, our eyes on, paying attention to, hearing about, thinking about, dwelling on, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Who's doing this? God's doing this. Through the indwelling, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What's our, what's our attention supposed to be on? Our work, our effort, our, our, our good deeds? No. We're bypassing the whole purpose, the whole point of that thing. When we just go out and just try harder to obey, we need to look to Jesus. And he needs to dominate us. And our heart's affections need to be stirred as we think about him. Jesus needs to be a treasure to us. A treasure. Not some guy I said a few words to back when I was 18. Today, tomorrow, our heart's affections need to be stirred toward this one whose image we're being transformed into. That's how image bearing, that's discipleship. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy toward us in Christ. We are overwhelmed, overwhelmed by your love for us.